to the Deep Sea Podcast, a politic on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley. With me is the Professor Alan Jameson. You all right, mate? I'm fine, thanks. Yeah, believe it. <laughs> Sound fine. <laughs> do you have a soundtrack? Will that explain your, your current feelings? No, I do have a soundtrack. And as you know, I'm not a religious man. I'm not a superstitious man, but there is a little superstitious thing that I do sometimes. Go on. And I'm going to talk a little bit about diving in subs today because I just got back, but it just dawned on me recently that I do have a little superstitious thing to do, and that is just before you get in the sub, you've got to go and get dressed. And that sounds weird, but when you're going that deep, you get very, very cold because it's down at two degrees Celsius and so on. So you've got like multiple layers and four T-shirts and five pairs of socks, not honest, but And while I do that, I, I play a little song. So I thought I'd use that for uh, today's song of the month. Okay, what is it? It's a weird one because it, it's one that in 2007, just before we did the first ever 10,000 meter dive and I was completely out of my depth, excuse the pun, it came on shuffle. And it was one of those ones that whenever you're about to do something stupid or crazy, that's the song. <laughs> and it's a song that's just a cover song played really badly by five guys who are already off their face. It's Nice Boys Don't Play Rock and Roll by Dancing Rose. Right, that's it all like getting ready, yep. donning the outfit. Yeah, that gets you going. It's a terrible song, but it's brilliant at the same time. <laughs> it's the thing you do before you're about to do something really, really, really nuts. Should we dive into some news? Nice. We're looking at the good and the bad and the ugly then. So the good is vulnerable deep sea ecosystems get further protection from bottom fishing in EU waters. And that is protection of vulnerable marine ecosystems like seamounts and coral reefs and things like that. The bad is that deep sea mining looks like it's... The tests, at least, have been given the green light to go ahead to do a, a trial in the Clarion Clipperton zone in the eastern Pacific. And ugly is the UN ocean treaty has failed again. Nobody seems to be able to agree on stuff. Politics, Tom. Politics. It's ugly. Good old fun politics. Yeah. Well, both the treaty and the and the bottom protection has been hovering for a long time. Was this the fifth time we've discussed the ocean treaty? Probably, yeah. Which would really change the shape of things. So even in the the area, international waters you'd still need to do a survey and do environmental monitoring if you were going to do anything, which at the moment is it's pretty open out there. It's all policy. It's all places that to resolve these problems, you have to put on a shirt and tie. <laughs> and they don't let us in. I think we're best just getting down deep and, and uh, trying to go under the radar so we don't have to wear a suit. <laughs> is it time to talk about unidentified spiky blue goo? Go for it. I'm not sure what I'm going to say about that because I have no idea what it is either. <laughs> I feel confident, and then I look at it again, and then I, I lose that confidence. So basically, during Noah's live streaming or dive streaming from the Akinoa's Explorer, there was a mysterious blue thing spotted near the US Virgin Islands between about 400 and 600 meters deep. And researchers on board and on the live feed were uh, arguing over whether it could be a, a soft coral or a sponge or potentially a tunicate, so like a sea squirt, which I think was the first first thing that jumped out to me. It looked a bit sea squirty, but the, the opening seemed to be really small. And there's multiple images that seem to show, I'm not sure if it's the same thing changing shape. I don't think it is. If you look at the seafloor around it, the ones where it looks like a ball has other white objects on the seafloor around it, whereas the one where it's looking really flat doesn't. So it looks like it's a different individual, but I have no idea. There's, there's like nothing to go on. <laughs> it's no. Like, uh, it's blue. Because you thought you thought maybe a closed anemone, like the beadlet anemones that you get on the beach. But there's no opening, is there? Uh, and now that I see the flat one, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's a no from me. I don't know. I don't know what that is. I assume it's some sort of spongy, corally type of thing, because that's the two groups that spring to mind when you start seeing weird 
objects that have no forms or, or any sort of regular symmetry to it. It's just bizarre. Very cool, though. So lots of chat on Twitter. I think they put it on their Instagram. Lots of people were talking about it there. It's nice to have a little bit of a mystery. It's nice that it's a beautiful and weird mystery. No one is pushing it too much as a horror show. It's a shame that the reporting is always like scientists baffled, you know, boffins scratching their heads. But that's like the job. That's part of it. You're meant to figure these things out. But it's nice to see people engaging. Just saying, marine scientists don't know every single animal in the sea. <laughs> Meanwhile, fisherman catches a monkfish and loses his mind. <laughs> yeah, has, he has a living nightmare. <laughs> there was a shark caught that we were moaning about because it's a kite fin shark. It's perfectly lovely. Yet another deep sea monster alien nightmare reporting angle for a perfectly common abundant fish that a lot of people know about. But there was a cool one the Megamouth was filmed at the surface. That didn't appear, I don't know, I didn't dig too deep into that, but it didn't appear to be generating ridiculous headlines. And it was just sort of swimming, it was somewhere off San Diego, and then it was swimming around just on the surface, and somebody filmed it from a boat, and we're like, oh. There it is. I guess they thought it was a Baskin shark or something like that, when they got close to it, like, no, no, that's definitely not a Baskin shark. That's kind of cool. They are so weird. It's not really deep sea. Did you see what happened in Tasmania two days ago? No. 200 and something pilot whales washed up. Oh, yes. They managed to save about 35, and now they've just got 100 and something or other. Dead whales. Carcasses lying on the beach. It's pretty horrific. Are they still considered a um, toxicity issue? Because heavy metals bioaccumulate so much in them. Well, they were saying they had one there recently, last year or the year before or something like that, and they, and they kind of figured out how to bury them or drag them out of deep water or something like that. But on this occasion, there has been cases where they just leave it to break down naturally, but when you have... 200 to two and a half ton whales mm. all just lined up on one beach they're like we can't leave this anyone who's worked with them there's a very special smell to a dead cetacean to a dead whale or dolphin the sort of rancid fat it's like that beach is not going to be smelling good yeah all that blubber well I remember when in the northeast of scotland where we used to work there was a, a whale washed up very nearby our lab and other scientists at our department were genuine whale scientists and they were doing i think they were using the teeth to age the animal and this particular guy who should remain nameless perhaps should have worked on his uh, PR or his public engagement skills because there's heaps of people getting down to come and see the carcass. And he just, he just walked up with a saw and started sawing his jawbone <laughs> off. And then he just looked like a cycle nut job who turned up to just take a souvenir off this thing's face. He didn't he didn't stop and say, by the way, my name's Professor such and such, and I study these things, and this this is actually science. Yeah, this is a science thing. He just went, nah, she went straight in there and started butchering this thing. <laughs> it's like... You know, remember where you are. Oh. <laughs> People are horrified. Kids have nightmares. We get so excited by our work, and we're we're usually kept behind closed doors. And maybe this is why. When I was doing my media training, they always tell the story of <laughs> of a scientist who was asked to come on as an expert in something particularly horrible that was happening. But he was so excited about being on TV, he did it all with like a massive grin on his face. Nice. <laughs> so he just looked insane. So yeah, yeah, there, there is a bit of training available for helping scientists <laughs> interact with real human people <laughs> who have thoughts and feelings. <laughs> is there any idea what caused the stranding? Quite often active sonar is blamed. At the moment, no. There'll be a look into that. No, there's no point. It's not deep sea. Oh yeah, not our job, not our jurisdiction. Yeah. So what about you, Alan? What news can you share from your last adventure? Oh, lots. I officially ended a couple of days ago. So we did a imaginatively titled Japan 1 and Japan 2 expeditions. <laughs> so I did the first month and then other people came on. So we swapped out and they did the second month. And we worked with a bunch of Japanese scientists from three or four institutes around Japan. And I flew out to Okinawa. 
first dive myself and Mr. Viscovo went down to 7,300 whatever it was meters in the Ryukyu Trench, which is a word I just cannot get my mouth around. It's R-Y-U-K-Y-U. It's also known as Nancy Shoto Trench. It's a weird one. We did the dive. It was very, very cool. And Landers picked up a whole population of snailfish, which is interesting because that trench is pretty well isolated from all the other ones, so that was interesting. The dive itself had one of the most conspicuous things, I thought, was quite a lot of metal objects, like paint cans and what was clearly a Jack Sparrow's treasure chest at one point. But wherever there was an old metal object on the seafloor, downstream of that, there was a big patch of xenophyophores. Mm. And I was like, what the hell is this? Why are they always like a, associated with a bit of metal? And the Japanese guy I was working with happens to be a world authority on xenophyophores, which is Hiroshi Kitazato. And he was like, when they're building their test, when they're, when they're basically bulking up, they're scavenging the iron particles coming off the rust for ballast, which what keeps them on the seafloor. So whenever you get a rusty object on the bottom, the chances are there'll be a pile of xenos next to it. That's incredible. I think we've spoken about them before, but just because it's a weird name, the xenophyophores, they're technically a single cell, yeah. but they've got multiple nuclei. So it's one big giant cell. It's about the size of um, a cricket ball, about the size of a baseball crinkly sort of sediment shape to it it looks a bit like an onion bhaji but very very cool just one giant single cell really unusual animals so yeah very cool that they're uh they're harvesting iron as ballast yeah. and then he just delivers that like that is a known thing yeah and like these things can't get any weirder but apparently they do so there you go anyway so that that dive was cool and uh we did a i think it was six landers across the depth range of that one and we mapped it and all the rest of it was great then we went four or five days steam across east to the Aizu Ogasawara Trench. And first dive I did there was the deepest point in the southern end. And we put down a guy called Katsu, who's a geologist from Japan. And he's now the deepest diving Japanese guy of all time, if you don't know that kind of thing. But he's he's studied that trench for, for like 20 years. Oh, nice that you got to do it. Yeah, he was stoked. He was totally all over that. And it was that was a really cool dive too. They had these giant thick stocks and anemones on the bottom, which I've never seen before. That was kind of interesting. And we did a ton of landers there as well. Picked up a, a different type of, well, actually two snailfish. There, there is a population of snailfish in that trench, which, as we know, could be the Japanese snailfish that we know of, or it could be the Mariana snailfish we know of, because this trench joins the two together, and there's no corridor between it. So if it is one of the other two, why is it linked with one of them and not the other? Mm. Or is it a third species? It's probably a third one, I would have thought. But in, amongst all that, there was this big blue wrinkly one, which I've never seen anything like that before. It looked like a normal snailfish, but it was blue, sad. It looked like it was 180 years old. And it didn't look like it ever wanted to swim. When you see it swim, it's just like, oh. This again. Oh, this is such, it's such hard work. <laughs> <laughs> it's just somewhere across between a snailfish and a pug. Yeah. It's got that elderly feel to it, though. It's got that, um, yeah. like an old basset hound. A spoiler, by the end of the two months, we actually did 62 lands. And that blue thing is all the way up through Japan Trench as well. Oh, that is interesting. They're never any more than one at a time. Maybe occasionally two, but compared to the other one where you get maybe up to 20. So again, that was kind of cool. And then we went north to the Triple Junction. And it's a place called the Boso Triple Junction. And it's where the Eurasian, Pacific and Philippine plates all meet. So it's one of the few, I think it's one of only two places in the world where you've got three tectonic plates fighting for dominance. And as a result of that, you end up with a really gnarly feature. And it happens to be 9,200 meters or something at the bottom. So I thought, I'm having a crack at that. 
And the only information from there is a paper written in about 2009, I think it was, maybe even earlier, that they're crinoids, which are sea lilies, which come up in fossil records quite a lot. But there's supposed to be a crinoid meadow at the bottom of this. And they call it a meadow because it's supposed to be hundreds. Normally for crinoids, we normally see one or two if there's lots of hard substrate. Yeah, tops of rocks. But never hundreds or thousands. So I thought, I know what we'll do. We'll have a crack at that. Myself and pilot called Chris May, we jumped in the sub and we went down. We were having a great old time. We're playing a game where we had Japanese boiled sweets and I had to suck on a boiled sweet but not bite it. And when I put it in my mouth, he had to then guess the depth at which it finally dissolved. <laughs> there's not, not much else to do. Yeah, I mean, it's not the greatest sport of all time, but it's, it's not that you're limited in your resources when you're sitting in a small metal ball. But yeah, so we got to about close to 9,000 meters, certainly when they're a few hundred meters at the bottom, and the sub started to make some funny noises, and there was a noise that we didn't like, so unfortunately we aborted, pushed the button, dropped the weights, came back up, and spent a couple of days scratching our chins trying to work out what that was, and it was a really interesting experience, because I've, I've been many an aborted dive, and this was by no means the most violent or weirdest one, it was one of those ones where you hear something and the part of your brain connected to your ears just goes on fire. Because you can't see outside the sub, right? So your vision's useless. You can't smell outside the sub. So it was weird. It's just that you've got such a heightened sense of hearing and you're listening to every little... Because the sub makes loads of noises because it compresses on the way down. So it does make snappy noises and cracking noises when the foam, the buoyancy starts to expand and contract and so on. But this was different. This was like, what was that? That didn't sound good. And so we bailed him. Not entirely sure where it was. But uh, we think we, we knew what it was, and it was something relatively minor. But something relatively minor or a small air cavity that might have imploded doesn't sound like a big deal. But when you've got 900 bar behind it, it probably does make pretty big noise. So, so anyway, so we build over a Japan Trench. We put Hiroshi down to the deepest point in the Japan Trench at 8,000 meters. He was pretty happy about that. The cool thing with the Japan Trench was benthic tinophores. Ever come across a benthic tinophore? I certainly haven't. No. They look like normal tinophores. They've got the two big tendrils. They look like the ones that normally float around, but they're holding out in the rocks, and they were everywhere, all over the Japan Trench. Not in the other two trenches, which is kind of cool. That was very interesting. Oh, wow. So then eventually after that, because we did the 8,000-meter dive because it was shallower than the, the depth in which we started hearing funny noises. So we've, Chris and I decided to strap a pair on and get back on the horse. And we went back south again to the triple junction we're doing at this time. We think we knew where it was. Maybe we're just being overcautious. And so we went down to 9,150 metres and it was absolutely unbelievably cool. I mean, these crinoids are bright yellow and there were hundreds of thousands of these things. It was just mesmerising. It was like driving around in a garden. I mean, the, the, the geology was mental. It was just big cliffs and steps and... At one point, we're sitting in what looked like the steps of a Mayan temple because he's sitting there going, what do you see? What do you see? I'm like, I don't know, Ma a Mayan temple? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> All right, do you want to go up it? I'm like, yes, let's go up it. That'll keep the nutters on Twitter happy? Absolutely, yeah. It's not, because I showed you a picture of it, but he's trying to describe the form. Yeah. So a Mayan temple would be like that sort of steepness and it, it was piling up in sort of loosely described as steps, if you like. So you're trying to describe what the terrain in front of the sub looks like. And uh, yeah, that was brilliant. And what was cool is I kind of forgot that the species that was named after me like 10 years ago, the Jameson eye, I found that in that trench. Oh, wow. I got to see it alive. One of them actually came up to the window and did a little dance right in front of the window and back down again. I was like, hey. <laughs> so that was quite nice. That was a nice little sort of touch. Yeah, it was quite intimate. By the end of Japan 1, we'd mapped 62,000 kilometers of seafloor. 34 landers and then I, I came off I put my guys on and they brought that up to 62 landers and two of my people Todd and Paige both managed to get down to 7,000 metres or so so they're now second and third deepest Aussies in the world In the club? They were pretty much concentrating around the 2011 earthquake site 
and it's just mental. Really? Utterly mental, what that earthquake did to the seafloor. I mean, it's just cracks and canyons and gullies, and it's just an absolute mess. But it's, it's amazing you see how it's been repopulated. And you've got a fixed like time scale. You know when those areas were recolonized, it's going to be really useful for, for deep-sea colonization. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Plus, other snowfish story was the uh, the ethereal snailfish that we found years ago, 2014 or something, the big floaty one. In Blue Planet 2, that one. That one, yes. Yeah, there are more of those. There's a beautiful one of that morph type in Japan. Got some really nice footage of that one. Yeah, so all in all, pretty amazing. I think in total we mapped somewhere between 70 and 80,000 square kilometers of seafloor. And I heard a rumor, I'm not sure, I need, I need to validate this, but apparently by next year, when we talk about the percentage of the oceans that's been mapped by multi-beam, the pressure drop alone will count for one whole percent of that. <laughs> so you're approaching solo, the little factoid that used to always be spun out. Yeah. Just doing it that yourself. Because <laughs> it would never switch it off, right? It's just on all the time. So And go to weird places that no one's been before. Yeah, I really, really, really liked it. I thought it was just a really cool trip. I love being up by the Ogasawara Islands. I've been up there a few times now. You go past Iwo Jima and you see the Iwo Jima was the site of the the big battle in World War II, the famous place where you see the silhouette of the American soldiers planting the flag on top of the hill. But when you sail past it, it's just like how on earth these guys stormed the island is beyond me. But it is a fortress, naturally, isn't it? But there's a big sort of yellow sulfur plume coming. We didn't actually see Iwo Jima this time. We've seen it a couple of times before. We were too far north this time. But what was weird is when we're steaming up towards Japan Trench, you'd just be on deck, and every now and again, you just get this completely engulfed by the smell of burning sulfur <laughs> now that's just an underwater volcano somewhere which is just belching <laughs> so yeah so the guys got back uh, today and then next week we'll have a wee sit down and take stock of exactly because it was so fast and furious that i got off the ship like almost a month ago and it feels like yesterday it's been great it was one of the most discovery dense cruises i've been aware of so it'll take a long time to unpack that the things at the start are just as important, but they've just kind of been overlaid by everything else that went on. So it's almost, you've been saturated by wonder. You have to take a little moment. Yeah. And the reason you came back early, or at least part of it, was we had a little reunion for the Challenger Conference in London. We did. I saw some podcast merch in the wild. Oh, we did, yeah. That's right, aye. Someone's buying it. You and I were sat in the Royal Geographical Society and you gave me a knock and said, look at that guy's notebook. <laughs> you see podcast sticker on the notebook. He was a proper scientist too. <laughs> that was a funny week, that. Yeah, yeah, it was. I think we all realized how rusty we'd gotten over lockdown. So like there was the first reunion night where I was just like so happy to see everyone. I was just like, oh, I've not seen you for years. And then we were all like socially exhausted by night three. And you just want to be on your own for a bit. It's weird. Yeah, I'm far more negative in that respect. I thought it was a great week for all sorts of reasons. But that's the last conference I've ever gone to. You've said that before. I oh, all the other stuff was cool. Uh, and the Queen died. And some crazy prime minister popped up. And it was like a completely bizarre week. Yeah, a lot went on. We're all, of course, in mourning for our international listeners. They're distraught. You should be, because you're proper English. I am. Well, she laid me as part of the, the hive. That's how we work. I thought she was supposed to be a space lizard. <laughs> Wasn't David Icke that thought the Queen was part of this underground alien lizard race that were wearing prosthetics? Well, if you rake through the, the muck of conspiracy theories, which is where I'm often found, yes, there was quite a lot of interesting discussion there. Diana was coming back, just so you know. Diana was going to reveal herself 10 days later and reveal why she had to go into hiding and fake her own death and who was it who died in that car. Yeah. I suppose space lizards, no one ever said they were immortal. So maybe she is a lizard, but she's just old. She's an old lizard. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, but it's always fascinating when they set specific dates and then nothing happens on it. Apparently, everyone who got the vaccine was meant to go mental on the 9th of September. Oh, really? Maybe that's why that week was so weird. Maybe it did happen. Yeah, maybe it does. If I was a conspiracy theorist, I would never put a date on anything. That separates the skeptics from the true believers, because then you're left with like a fanatical base who, uh, yeah, the multiple times you've been proven wrong just gets them digging in deeper. Your best just to remain vague and unconvincing. Yeah. I got into a discussion with a few folks saying that um, there was an article that Nostradamus had predicted the, the death of the Queen. And, you know, they were talking about those articles and was like, have they quoted the supposed prophecy? Because they're all talking about it, but I find it really, really telling that they're not actually just putting the quote in there and letting you make up your own minds whether that has anything to do with the Queen. <laughs> because some of his predictions were nuts. I actually read, I read an article about that recently, and it's just most of it. Most when people talk about Nostradamus, most of it's absolute rubbish. Yeah, and and a lot of his stuff was like stream of consciousness, and the fire in the sky will be witnessed by the angry bird, and it's all just this could be anything. <laughs> yeah, good to dabble in that end of things just to see what's going on, what's ruining people's lives right now. Anyway, it was good to be back on the ship again because that's the longest I've been off the ship because of immigrating to the other side of the world and setting up a new deep sea center and not being allowed out of wa for a long time it's nice to be back with everyone there and it's funny because it's getting much more organized and much more uh, equipped and some of the the groups on board are more competent you know i used to be that when i talk about having done 64 landers it was actually me myself who puts them in the water but sub team has grown and sort of matured a bit they've actually got people who do it for me so i don't actually do very much anymore just to sit there and pick the sites keep a log of it all and sort of trying to mastermind where to go and don't actually do any of the hands-on windswept nautical nonsense anymore so I spent a lot of time just up on the bridge drinking coffee with the captain it's quite weird one half it makes me feel quite old yeah to not be down on the on the front line chucking stuff over the side but at the same time i quite like it because you know i'm gonna hand it proof i've done it all before i've done it over 500 times so and it gives other folk the chance to to learn how to do that get some experience well i I feel like I've missed out by not spending as much time on the bridge as I could have done. <laughs> Turns out it's great up there. Well, it's, it's really interesting because it's the center point to everything, right? Because, you know, you've got, when you do a subdive, you've got a tender out with like two or three people on it. And then you've got a, a rib out, which is doing some of the interaction with the sub. You're towing the sub. You've got the sub team on the back. You've got the deck crew there. And you've got engineers keeping the ship running. And you've got scientists wanting coffee. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's interesting to just see something you're really familiar with, but from a different perspective. So yeah, so I quite enjoyed that. Yeah, the marine side of things is like, it's the other side of the coin. I think it's why we often get an engine tour when we're on a vessel. It's just like, you guys think you're busy and you're living in this world, but did you know there's a whole other world below your feet and yeah. that keeps all this going? The good thing about that ship is the crew. They're just a really good bunch of folk who got on really well and very, very different from most other crews I've ever worked with. And, you know, they're all, we're all mates. There's a surprisingly high number of Scottish people involved in this. I don't know if that's a coincidence or not, but uh, but there are people from a whole manner of different nationalities and so on. And it's, yeah, it's nice that even after a year you walk on and it's like you were there yesterday. Yeah, there's a whole other side to these operations that we don't hear about that often. You always guess we're hearing people like myself doing hero lunges and talking about subdiving and talking about the types of data that comes in off these things but there's a forgotten element to this whole industry is these invisible people on the ship who are actually there spending months and months and months of the year at sea supporting the acquisition of scientific data even though they're not scientists and not the ones who walk away with the the beautiful data or video and everything else and that is that is the crew that's the captains and the crew and a lot of the pressure and risk weighs on them 
Yeah, I remember Tom Walsh was talking about this when we spoke to him on episode two about everyone knows Walsh and Picard. Mm. But then there was this other scientist guy who'd never really got any recognition, and there was the, the captain of the ship who was obviously a big deal. And sometimes I think they, they fall into the shadow of the person who's telling the story, and that, in our case, tends to be the, either the person in the sub or the scientist or whoever it is. And we don't want the rest of them to be forgotten because what they're doing is absolutely brilliant. They're holding the whole thing together. So we should talk to the captain. Go straight to the captain. Go straight up the stairwell. Just go straight up on the bridge and go, Captain, get the coffee on. Let's have a chat. <laughs> What's that beeping button? What's the, what does that do? <laughs> yeah, let's get in the way. Let's ask loads of questions during a complicated manoeuvre and, yeah, make ourselves a coffee. People do, though. When you hang out on the bridge often enough, you realise how rude some people <laughs> actually are when you've got yeah. two people in a submarine being towed behind the ship trying to get on the hook and some people say, oh, yeah, coffee machine's broken. They're like, nah. Not now. I'm spinning seven plates. Three of them have people in them <laughs> whose lives are in my hands. Yeah. <laughs> nah, let's give Stu a fun. Stu's a legend. Yeah, let's talk to Captain Stu. To get a captain's take on all things deep sea, there is only one man who can fill this month's slot on the podcast. He's a captain of many talents, a veteran of the oil and gas industry, currently known for being the man at the wheel of the DSSV pressure drop. He was also the captain of the Mermaid Sapphire on James Cameron's Mariana Trench Dive. And more importantly, he's a good friend and supporter of the science department. And by my reckoning in the last four years, and I've counted this this afternoon, that we have now done 15 expeditions together and visited 17 different countries together. So if he's put on me with that long, you'll be good for at least another half hour. So it's my absolute pleasure to introduce to the Deep Sea Podcast, all the way from sunny Spain, Captain Stuart Buckle. Hey Stu. Hey, thank you very much for having me on. That's all right. 17 countries, that's quite impressive. Yeah, some of them are overseas territories, but uh, you know, 17 different places. Some of we've been to many times since, but yeah, that's quite a lot. That's, that's a lot of miles in four years. <laughs> it is, quite a few miles, yeah. So right, first question, let's go back to the start of your submersible captain's career, right? So you were in command of the Mermaid Sapphire for Mr. Cameron's life, 2012. Yes. How do you get that gig? I mean, how do you become the first captain to deploy a full ocean depth sub for over 50 years? I would like to to have some big dramatic story about how I was headhunted from afar, but in reality, it was just sheer blind luck and good fortune. The Mermaid Sapphire was between contracts, between jobs in the Gulf of Thailand, and James Cameron sent his recon party out to try and find a mothership and it just so happened that the Sapphire met all the requirements for cabin space, deck space, had a crane that was big enough to lift the sub and, and was available. So we were just sat in a little port called Rayong in Thailand. And I had the director and a couple of technical guys from Cameron's company come down and have a look around. Turned out that I, I got very well with the sort of expedition leader there, Andrew White. We sort of hit it off straight away. And although the ship wasn't perfect, I sort of managed to explain how we could make it all work. And they seem to be uh, taken with that, or at least they believe me. And and the rest, as they say, is it's history. Oh, cool. So what was that like? Did you get a sense at the time that that was quite a historic, monumental thing to do? Because that was the first time anyone had been down to Mariana for like 60 years or something, 50 years. Or was it just another job? To be honest, not at all. They were very sort of 
cagey and secretive about what the actual plan was with Deep Sea Challenge. They, they didn't even mention that name. They just wanted to know about deck space and what what weight the crane could lift, what weather conditions I thought we could overboard things in. It wasn't until, I don't know, maybe uh, three months later when we were just about to arrive into Sydney that um, I started seeing drawings and diagrams of, of what was being planned. And then Jim came down when we arrived and we all sort of sat down and had a meeting and explained what the goals were and what it was we were trying to do. And then it kind of became a big deal, if nothing else, because you've got the biggest movie director of all time sat in your office drinking coffee, just sort of chatting away with you, which is quite a a bizarre thing to have on a Wednesday morning after you arrive in Sydney. (laughs) That must be a cool conversation to have. So I remember you telling me a little bit of a a nerve-wracking moment during the recovery of that sub on the big dive. Is it true that you couldn't find him? Not not strictly, not strictly true. When he was on the surface, we could find him very easily, in fact, because that vehicle had AIS, which once he was on the surface, it meant we could see him on both radars and on the Ectus we had. So that was fine. The issue was that when he was below the surface, we had absolutely no idea where he was. Right. Uh, we had no, no sort of tracking at all. So we just had to keep a long way away just in case he came up and hit, and hit the ship. You think limiting factors quick, the uh, Deep Sea Challenger used to come up at six knots. Wow. So it really was like a rocket ship. It used to breach like a whale. And uh, the steel sphere was right on the bottom. So And, and the top section was all um, foam and batteries. So sort of the nightmare scenario would be that if he would come up and impact the ship, shatter all the foam and crush the batteries, and they'd have no buoyancy and the little steel sphere would just go back down again and never come back. Ooh. So that was the kind of thing used to keep me up at night. <laughs> Just, you know, people always say, you know, oh, we, we, didn't, we didn't really know you were there. We didn't know you were involved in that project. You weren't sort of promoted. And I was like, no, I was quite happy not being promoted and not being high profile because that meant everything was going well and, and I was doing my job. You know, if I'd have been the one that killed James Cameron, I would have been uh, very famous, I'm sure. Um, you would have got your own Wikipedia page. Yes, but that was something I wanted to avoid at all costs. Yeah, absolutely. So a number of years passed after the, the Cameron gig to getting on the pressure but what did you do in between that how do you walk away from such a high profile gig did you just go back to oil and gas oh with my head in my hands and then crawling back and lying in the fetal position for six months <laughs> the thing was it the whole deep sea challenge thing was, was was sold to me very much like a a five deeps situation and that the plan was to take this incredible vehicle albeit for different reasons it was to be for movie making and yeah. videography and and that sort of thing but the plan was to take it around all the deep, the deepest parts of the world's oceans on a sort of very long-term project yeah. so this was you know incredibly exciting for me and and all the team on board and we were all sort of really keyed up for that but then unfortunately the sort of driving force behind that andrew white and to a certain extent mike degree they both were uh, unfortunately killed in a helicopter crash and the sort of the drive from everyone else involved kind of sort of died with them oh that's a shame and and that combined with the 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 sub being not in a great condition when it came back from its last deep dive you know meant that it was just decided to shelve the project and then i sort of had to go back unfortunately back to a a very sort of mundane existence to me of of subsea construction and and oil and gas which was pretty soul-destroying to be honest because i was sort of very um i was very bought into the concept of exploration and to a certain extent the science we did do the science to the extent that we do now. But we had landers and we had um, cameras, you know, and, and, and they took baited traps down there. We got some sort of um, sampling done. But it, I'd never seen anything like that before. I'd never been involved in that. And although I'm a, a geek and I love technology and, you know, the engineering of aspect of the sub is absolutely incredible, what 
really grabbed me and what tends to grab everyone else long term is the science, is the, the seeing new species, getting to explore places that, that no one's been before. That really sort of hooked me. And all the cool kids hang out in the science department as well. Indeed, indeed. And that was really what sort of captured my imagination and captured and sort of reignited my drive after being in oil and gas for sort of 15 years. Yeah. It was sort of very sort of just the day job. So it must have been cool getting that call about the pressure drop saying all that stuff that you didn't get to do. Oh, it was. We're on. It was, it was incredible. I had to wait like seven and a half years. But yeah, I was living in Glasgow at the time. I was sat up. It was like Friday evening. I was just sat and watching TV or something. And, uh, and the phone went and it was uh, Rob McCallum. And he was like, uh, I think I've got a job you're going to want to take. <laughs> I think when, when someone like Rob McCallum says that, you just say yes. <laughs> I didn't say what. I just said when. I said, when do you need me? <laughs> yeah. And, and he's like, you know, next week. And I'm like, okay. So for, for the benefit of the listeners who don't know, when the pressure drop used to be the MacArthur 2, it's a NOAA hydrographic vessel. Before that, it was the Indomitable, which is an old naval submarine hunter in the Cold War. So when Stu took command of it, it, it had been left sort of sitting in a yard somewhere for a while. Eh? So it was like a full sort of refit, repurpose, recrew. It was right from the bare bones up. So at the point that you took command of it, what what were the biggest challenges in putting together this operation from the ship's captain perspective? The biggest challenge actually was, was being brought in too late. Rob only kind of went down and looked at the ship when he got a call from Victor saying, why, why is it late? Why is it over budget? And why are things not working? So he went down there and even to use his words in his layman's eye view of the, the project, he saw that it wasn't how it should be. I think he spoke to a couple of the initial crew they had there doing the refit and he wasn't very impressed. So then he called me over and I saw Wayne undercover, all dressed up in EOS baseball cap, EOS jackets, you know. Nice. Introduced as their deep sea expert. Um, but basically, I was just scoping out the ship and the crew and, and seeing what the general situation was. It was a combination of having guys that weren't used to dealing with sort of older, more agricultural equipment um, and other people just not not having experience directly of, of doing ship refits. So they might have spent a lot of time on a ship, but they don't actually know ships. It's like, I've spent a lot of time on airliners, but if someone said to me, I want to buy a 747, I wouldn't go and inspect it. I'd get a pilot to go and inspect it or an yeah. avionics engineer. You know, I wouldn't just go and sit there and go, oh, yeah, C-14C reclines, that looks fine. I'll go in the cockpit. Oh, it's got an artificial horizon. That looks great, you know. Four engines check. So they just didn't maybe know the, the scope of what was required. Yeah. And because I was brought in later, a lot of decisions had already been made that were probably the wrong decisions, but it was too late to undo them. So we, it was very much a case of do the best with what you've got. And uh, yeah. the only way that I could do that was to bring in the best people I knew. So the only sort of requirement I had with Victor was that if he wanted me to do it and for me to be successful, I had to be able to handpick the team to come and work with me. So um, I went through all my uh, my previous ships and picked the the who's who of, of who I wanted to be on the pressure drop to get it working and, and, and to deal with the issues that we had. And a lot of that was down to attitude. It wasn't necessarily qualification. Or they all had the qualifications, but it wasn't like, you know, the best person in the field. It was the guy who was the one to roll his sleeves up and charge at the problem head first was the type of guys I wanted, you know. Yeah. Especially when we're when we're down in the Southern Ocean and stuff. You can't just pick up the phone and ask for a service engineer. You need someone to say, right, well, this is the situation and we're going to have to deal with it now. It's funny because my next question was along those lines because, you know, I've heard it said many a time when people talk about Captain Buckle, your biggest strength is to some degree people management, right? So part one of my next question was like, what I think makes Bristol Rock quite unique is actually the crew. And there's a lot of mutual respect for one another between the individuals and departments. And at the end of the day, everyone sits down as mates and then you're almost all equal. And I find that rather unique. And I was wondering if you, you know, what's your selection criteria for for bringing on new crew or, or at least retaining the, 
good guys you've got? Is it all sort of just filtering through lots of people and just keeping the good ones, or is there, do you see something in a particular officer or, or, or decade or whatever, and you think, no, nah, this guy's going to work, so you're in? That's a really good question. The majority of the guys and, and girls that came with me initially, I'd, I'd worked with before, so I, they were sort of proven proven assets, if you like, for me. With regards to, to new people coming through, I always tend to either go with someone that I know personally or someone else who works with me who I, who I already trust yeah. has worked with before and says they're good. It's very difficult for someone to recommend someone to come work on board with them and with me because if they're not what they say they are, then it's found out very quickly and everyone looks bad. Yeah. So what that tends to do is filter it out and you tend to get people only recommending people that are actually, you know, top of the game and, and, and people who will fit in. Yeah. And it, it's funny you say about the atmosphere on board. I do have a sort of very informal management structure in the fact that all the guys that work for me know I'm the captain. I know I'm the captain. So I don't need to shout at them. They don't need to, you know, bow down to me. If I ask them to do something, they'll do it because I'm the captain. And I also expect them, if I ask them to do something silly or they think it's dangerous, they'll question me and, and say why. But also, I also give them a lot of a lot of leeway and responsibility just to get on and run their own departments, run their own position. Yeah. It's that famous saying, right? Always hire people smarter than you. Yeah. And it's true, you know, I tend to think of myself more of like a manager, like a football manager, like, you know, yeah. Sir Alex Ferguson or something at Man United. I <laughs> I just try and get best selection of, of players I can and, and put them in the best positions I think they're they're good at. And then hopefully they all work together and uh, and we end up winning the Champions League. But it is quite unique, that, you know, because I've, I've worked on, I don't know, about 20 or 30 different ships. And more often than not, there's big fractions within the ship's crew. You know, the officers sit at one table, deck crew sit on another table, they don't talk to each other, the galley staff hate everybody, you know, and it can be quite a weird, <laughs> like, microcosm of society. And uh, it often doesn't function because of that. And what I really love about pressure drop is that it doesn't exist. As you say, there's, there's enough respect there for everyone to know where their place is. But at the end of the day, you're all the same team. Sure. Genuinely really like that. But part two of that question, which is something that I was thinking about a couple of weeks ago when I was on the bridge with you, just drinking science coffees in the afternoon, is one part of your job that I find really fascinating is that being in command of an isolated group of 45 people, often from quite different backgrounds and spanning many, many countries, a big part of your job is a bit like a soap opera, right? So, you know, there's the mentoring and the pastoral care, gossip control, conflicts medical issues do you get taught that when you go for your master's ticket do they teach you the people management of running a ship or is that just you're quite good at that not not really i mean in, in more recent years they've, they've started teaching what they call the human element sort of aspect to the job but they never did that when i was doing <laughs> doing my master's i think i try and i try and mentor the guys as much as possible because i had a couple of good mentors when i was a young officer but to be honest, where you learn most is is through sailing with bad captains. You know, I mean, I've sailed with quite a few bad captains. I've been very lucky to sail with a number of good ones. Yeah. But it's the bad ones that you learn from. You just see how they treat people how, or how they treat you. Yeah. And you know, when I, when I was coming up through the ranks, I was just like, do you know what? I'm never going to be like you. Yeah. And I'm going to try my hardest to be the opposite to you. And I'm going to try my hardest to make everyone I work with be the opposite to you. So that that kind of gets stamped out within a generation, you know, because when I started back in the sort of mid 90s, there were still a lot of guys who, who started to see in the late 60s. Yeah. So there was a lot of generational issues there, just like there is in normal life with, you know, sexism, chauvinism, racism, all these things that are not tolerated these days and sort of don't happen with the new younger generations. But 
it was a real issue with the old boys if it was you know so I've made a conscious effort throughout my career to try and change the direction of, of things for the better hopefully. It's an interesting concept that there are some people out there which are truly inspiring and the reason why they're inspiring is because people think I'm never going to be like you. <laughs> it's like that, that's your legacy. I know. But, you know, it's one of the most important lessons you, you can teach, you know. And yeah. and I tell the guys on board, you know, sometimes I can see they're, they're, they're a bit annoyed with me or, or they're upset about, about what I've said. Because another thing is I'm a very sort of direct person and I speak my mind and I just tell it how it is because that's in my world. I don't have time for dressing things up yeah. or trying to make things, you know, look better than they are. Because it's ultimately my responsibility to deal with the reality of the situation. So yeah. the more sort of <laughs> the more honest I can be with myself, with everyone else, the quicker we can deal with it and make it better for everyone. Yeah. But I, I just tell the guys, you know, if you don't like what I'm saying, just have a go away and, and think about why I'm saying it. And if you still don't agree with it, then when you're in my position, you can do it differently. Yeah. And if I've got an issue that I had with previous captains, then you can stamp it out when you're captain and it'll move on from there. But um, what they don't teach you and what does happen a lot is my main job is kind of <laughs> administrator and do paperwork and just scanning things and signing things and yeah. emailing things. My second job is like captain, but my third job is like counsellor. <laughs> you know, quite often I'll, I'll have people come in my office and just sit down and, and sort of tell me their problems. And I'm very happy that I can provide that service, but it's certainly not something I get paid to do or, or I've been trained to do. I was terrible at that. So in my job in Aberdeen, they made all the lecturers uh, pastoral carers or something like that. And we had to look after like, I don't know, half a dozen undergraduates. And quite often they'd come into the office and they'd be like spilling their guts about something horrific that's happened to them. And I'm sitting there going, yes, yes, yes. Okay, I'm a shoulder to cry on here. You know, I'm like, you know, I have someone to, to listen. And inside I'm thinking, I have no idea how to deal with this. <laughs> like, this is horrific. <laughs> I'm not the right person to be talking to. I'm happy that they're, they're comfortable to come and speak to me. And, and it's much better that than I don't know. You know, if I didn't know, then I can't. Yeah. The biggest problems that you have on board is the ones you don't know about. Because if you don't know yeah. about things, you can't fix them. Yeah. Which is something I try and drum into them, especially uh, the Filipinos or the Asians who have a very sort of introvert culture who don't like speaking to authority figures or even speaking to anyone else about private matters. So, I've you know, I've tried to to sort of foster that within them so they will come and see me if they've got a problem before it, you know, yeah. reverts to stabbings or something. <laughs> so going back to uh, the subs, right? So on this podcast, we've talked a few times about the differences between, for example, being in the sub or doing it remotely or seeing a fish alive on a video or seeing it in a dead in a tank and all the rest. The difference between being there or not being there, right? So from your perspective, during sub dives, you're obviously the man orchestrating it and i think orchestrating is the right word having seen you do this so often yeah <laughs> uh, you know you're, you're trying to orchestrate all these different departments at the same time and everything else and or, or more like spinning plates spinning plates sort of slash orchestra <laughs> but some, somewhere in between that sounds better looking than spinning plates yeah. it's it's definitely something that is mesmerizing to watch but for you i know you've done a lot of oil and gas stuff and big infrastructure stuff and you've lifted stuff that's like hundreds of tons off of ships and all the rest of it is there a difference between an operation where you know there's somebody in that vehicle or in that package than if there's not? Or is it just a case of every operation is the same, you're just there to pick an item out of the sea and put it on the deck? Huge, huge difference, especially if it's someone you know. <laughs> and even and even more so if, if it's someone you like. Well, I was going to ask because you, you quite often pick me out of the sea, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Good answer. I am quite fond of you, Professor. So, yeah, I always make a, a point not, not to damage you or, or run the sub over. Good. No, but I think I was exposed to that because I, I used to work on the, the dive support vessels, the, the deep sea saturation divers, yeah. um, where, they, where they live under pressure and chambers on board. And, and that's very much um, 
a high pressure environment when you're sat on the controls and you've got two guys working down at you know 200 meters you know fixing things on the seafloor and if you make a mistake then you you're looking at killing two or maybe three guys yeah so i think i started doing that when i was you know very young sort of you know 20 years old and and second officer i was on on the controls for six hours a day for that so i think that kind of conditions you for dealing with the stress of it all but also understanding that every action you do has a consequence which could be a massive consequence for someone else so yes it makes a huge difference and when i went from the dive support vessels to sort of deep water ROVs, then yeah, you're sort of much more relaxed. It's a much more stress-free environment because the worst thing that can happen is you you damage a robot. I mean, yes, it's got some financial value, but no one's got to phone Johnny's mom and and let him know that he's not coming home because of something you did. So Yeah. yeah, it's a big deal. At the same time, I tend to spin it around that I'm helping my friends like you or my boss like Victor achieve their goals. So it's very much a, a positive thing that I'm I'm there putting you in the water and, and getting you back and making sure everything in between those two points works well is that I'm contributing to, to, to what you guys want to achieve. So that's that's how I tend to look at it. Which has been a lot. So I, I added it up today as well. So go back to the old deep sea bit. Over four years, I think we've done 280 lander deployments, probably close to 6 million square kilometers of seafloor mapped, over 120 subdives, visited every ocean. And with that in mind, what are the highlights? for you just for answer that it's funny that you say that people always ask you right is it is it worth you going down there what's the point of having a man submersible yeah and you always come back saying well it's good that humans can put their eye on it and you know divert course whatever if you need to rather than looking at it through a camera remotely the funny thing is lots of people ask me the same question and for me <laughs> every dive site looks identical it's just the open ocean true i mean yes <laughs> yes the water color can be different <laughs> but generally speaking i'm floating around on the ocean with a couple of support craft, you know, buzzing around and a sub on the, on the seafloor. And that's it. People ask me that question all the time and uh, I'm not really sure why. Thinking along those lines, I think back to, there's some scientific highlights, which I won't bore you with, but in terms of the, the actual expedition type of stuff, I mean, it wasn't that, when was it? 2019, we're off in Antarctica and we, we came across an iceberg that was 28 miles long. Yeah. I mean, that, that for me stands out in all of that as being something truly exceptional moment of you parking a ship alongside a 28-mile-long <laughs> iceberg and we're just sort of looking going, huh. Yeah, I mean, that's all bucket list stuff, right, as well. Yeah. Which is incredible, really. I mean, from a, like a, a sailor's perspective, you know, they used to get all the old tattoos, the sailors, for, yeah. you know, you get different ones for crossing the Atlantic or crossing the equator. I mean, I don't have any tattoos, but if I did, I'd have a full set right now because the five deeps, you know, we went round the world twice to both poles, yep. crossed all the oceans, went through both canals, you know, Panama and Suez. Yeah, so, you know, we've really got the bingo of bucket list trips for captains. Bagged them all. And seeing um, seeing huge tabular icebergs down south and then nudging the bow into the, the ice pack up north, literally at the, the edge of the North Pole. Yeah, I've, I consider myself very lucky to have been able to do that over the last, um, the last few years. Well, I think one of the frustrating things about being a captain on a sub-support vessel is that obviously you are critical to the entire operation and therefore by default, you've never had the opportunity to dive in the sub, which I think everybody wants to happen. So we're going to try and rectify that at some point in the next couple of years. But if you were to get a dive, where would you go? Well, that's a very good question. I don't know. I'd, I'd, I'd probably seek scientific advice. 
I guess is that, is that me copping out? I need to go look up my list of good scientists to see if I can find someone you can talk to. I'm not bothered really about doing you know massive deep dives on big planes. You guys have done that to death. I know exactly what you mean because we've done so many deepest points and quite often they're not particularly interesting other than the sort of been able to say you did the deepest point. I mean, I, I get there is scientific value in, in oh, doing your transects and, and grabbing a video and, and you get your lambda sets and stuff. If I'm only going to do a couple of dives, I'd, I'd really like there to be something interesting to look at out the window. So yeah, somewhere where there's geologically interesting feature or lots of life or something interesting like a hydrothermal vent or even a wreck, you know. Yeah. Um, I know I know we talked before about when we did some our first time, it was weird that you know some of the wrecks had lots of, of marine life on them and, and some had very little. So that would be an interesting thing. Also, the remember when we went to Johnston and the tracks in the seabed where it um, sort of run down over the edge and fallen down into the deepest abyss? They looked like they were just made yesterday, which was really sort of shocking to me that it's like an 80-year-old event, but it looked like it had just happened yesterday, which is sort of, we talked about this, the impact on deep sea mining and stuff. I think people don't understand the severity of, of, of all that stuff and how these big corporations are likely to, to ruin large areas of the, the seafloor. So I'd actually like to do a dive somewhere where they were planning on doing some mining and then visit it afterwards and just see the sort of, you know, before and after shots. That'd be quite a cool thing. You know, it's funny, I was thinking about this earlier about like, What's a good Stu Buckle story? What's a good Captain Pressure Drop story? And I was thinking of all the cool places we've been and all the rest of it. And actually, the one that stands out, believe it or not, is something you'll probably not guess. But remember, we came into London at the end for the big party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We came right up the Thames, into uh, right across from the Millennium Dome. Is it, is it West India Quay or something it's called? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Pulled in there and pulled up alongside and we had a big event and we went to Trafalgar Square and the Royal Geographical Society and everything else. And then... Actually, before, I think before we got off the ship, they came and said you had to turn around. And I was thinking, you're in a key, right? You're in a dead end here. And I was, I was looking at sort of looking around going, how's he going to get out of here? Are we, can you reverse that far on a ship? And you did this, like, basically you put it into the middle of the key and spun it 180. I know there's a couple of guys on radios at the front and a couple of guys on the back. Sort of, but it, you must have made it with, like, meters either end to spare. And that, again, when we talk about orchestration, just watching you turn a ship 180 degrees in such a ridiculously tight place, I, th- I was in awe of that. I was genuinely just up the top going, I don't know how he just did that, but I'm glad he did. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? It, was, it wasn't easy, especially with, uh, with some Americans on the bridge ring right beside me screaming and hooting and hollering and then, <laughs> uh, some other Americans on the quayside shouting <laughs> like you know go pressure drop yeah woo! and then you know and then i think uh don walsh was there watching which is a fair bit of pressure yep. and uh and my uh, and my 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 dad was there and he's an ex-captain he was there watching that's right so he was yeah there was a huge amount of people on board so you know it was a it was quite a tricky maneuver on the best of times but to have like a, a massive live studio audience all watching kind of leading over my shoulder and usually you'd have a pilot to help you do that sort of thing, right? And yeah. But the no, you're on your own, pal. That's what they said on that. Okay, <laughs> you're on your own, pal. Turn it around. But luckily, there was enough of a, a small off off channel going off the the main channel that I could just put the bow in there enough to get the stern two meters clear, so I could spin it around. For any other captains out there, <laughs> the most impressive thing is, is that we've got the pressure drops pretty terrible at manoeuvring especially in dock you know she's got no stern thrusters the rudders are tied together yeah very small propellers all this sort of stuff so compared to the big fancy norwegian boats i'm used to working on where you've got an armchair with like 15 levers for thrusters in the arms you can just literally spin it around no bother yeah yeah that that was 
definitely the trickiest parking of the whole <laughs> of, of my career, actually. I, I wish someone had filmed that time lapse or something because it, it was actually really cool. Yeah. Actually, the, the other tight parking spot, Dom was also there to watch me. He was leaving Woolloomooloo Navy Base in Sydney. They let us um, tie up in there to load the Deep Sea Challenger and get all that loaded out. Yeah. But while we were parked in there, they kind of boxed us in with warships. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice. And I said, okay, you can, you, you can leave now. I'm like, are you going to move other warships? I'm like, no. No, warships don't do that. <laughs> so, of course, again, I had Don Walsh looking over my shoulder while I'm <laughs> maneuvering around all these warships. Yeah. I can't park a car if a stranger is looking at me. I couldn't do that. <laughs> it's very much like that feeling. You know, when you stop to um, reverse parallel park and then like someone walking on the street stops to watch you, it's, just, it's a bit yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, it sounds like a stress dream. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's crazy, right? And then and Don Walsh is like, you know, he's he's driven more uh, more types of, of ships and subs than, than I've had hot dinners, you know. So it's uh, yeah, it's interesting. We've had a good few stories out of Don, haven't we? Yeah. I mean, his submarine war games and being felt up under the table at, <laughs> on cruise liner, <laughs> and then everything in between. <laughs> That's just usually a Tuesday afternoon for Don. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That was just yesterday. <laughs> We've yet to find a topic that Don isn't like, oh, of course, I was there in the early days and advised them. Yeah, no, he, he was, yeah. absolutely. He's just been involved in everything. And like, as amazing as his dive was, it's almost a disservice to how, how amazing Don is that that's what people know. Yes, no doubt there'll be way more interesting stories out front and center. He's the first to admit that, though. No, he is. He's very sort of modest about it. And, you know, and he'll sit down and say, you know, I just sat there and went down and then came back up. And that was pretty much it. You know? yeah. But he was great on camera's job because he was there the whole time. So he used to knock on my door. And it's, it was just like the pressure drop. We had the curtains across the cabin doors, you know, so it's like the yeah. signal that if, if the curtains closed, I'm awake, you can come say hello. If the door's shut, I'm sleeping, you know. So yeah. the curtain used to be across and there'd be like a knock on the, on the wall. And then this arm would come through with like two wine glasses. <laughs> <laughs> like i don't know about you captain but i'm dying of thirst and then uh, and then i'll have to go and find a bottle of red wine from somewhere and then we'd sit there and just drink uh, red wine and he'd tell me all these stories it was really good times ah, that's a good bit of bonding so speaking of don walsh i think i should say at this point thanks very much Stu, for coming on the deep sea podcast and given you're a good friend of don walsh i think you should introduce don walsh here okay allow me to introduce a very good friend and a hero of mine don walsh Hello, this is Don Walsh, explorer and oceanographer. However, today I'm going to put on my retired U.S. Navy captain's hat and talk to you about the fine art of ship handling. I define it as simply skillful seamanship in situations where you're close into a, a dock, other ships, where there's the possibility of hitting something and either damage your ship or other property or even another vessel. The key is practice and lots of it. And that's why most captains will take the time to train their deck officers in close maneuvering situations, of course, under very close supervision. In order to make your ship do what you want it to do, you also have to take aboard other factors, such as the environment around the ship. That would be the wind, the tides, and visibility. That takes a fine seaman's eye. And also in consideration or keep in mind the possibility of equipment failures such as losing your steering or losing your propulsion power. The key is to simply stay ahead of the ship and anticipate all the what-ifs in case of something not going according to routine. I had good mentors in my early days of seagoing and uh, Started out in a World War II designed cargo ship, which was built in 1945. It was slow, 
It was underpowered, and maneuvering it in close-in situations was quite a challenge. Next, I spent 14 years in submarines before getting my first command in the late 1960s. While my primary job was to carry out the missions that the Navy assigned to us, another major part of my job was to train the young submariners who eventually become ship captains on their own. At the time, I was a cigar smoker because on board the diesel submarines of that time, that era, there was always a lingering odor of diesel oil, other bodies, and cooking. So these were kind of like incense sticks to mask these other odors. And so when I was training my officers to handle a ship, ship handling, if you will, I um, used to gauge their skills in the terms of cigars uh, used up during their landing attempts. A one cigar landing meant that that young officer was doing a pretty good job. If it got up to three or four, or if I bit one in two, then that's somebody that needed a lot of remedial training. And by the way, I was not smoking those cigars. I was just clamping down on them, like biting the bullet, so I didn't see anything until I thought the officer was getting into some trouble and I had to haul him back from the precipice. Some of my contemporary submarine captains like to kind of showboat, that is, make very flashy landings, what we would call a one-bell landing. That would be all-back emergency. But if you didn't get that backing bell or something happened to your propulsion, then a great deal of chaos would ensue. I remember one case where I just gotten alongside the dock and another submarine was going to come alongside and moor next to me. Well, he came whistling in at a high speed and asked for his all-back emergency. He didn't get it, and he went right on past me and smashed into the the Admiral's special boat. And that was not a happy time for either the Admiral or for that young submarine captain. This uh, validated my personal feeling that if you're really good in ship handling, no one will notice. But if you're bad, everybody sees it. I took my sub into many interesting situations, but I never broke anything or damaged anything or had an incident where my seniors wondered what the hell I was doing. Well, this is not meant to be a tutorial on how to drive a ship. I just thought it might be interesting to see what goes through the minds of captains who move the ships around to uh, accomplish their assigned missions. And that's all for now. Thanks for listening. I quite liked his captaining style, which is certainly not, I think it might be the way people are going, but it's certainly not what you tend to find on vessels. He's a very people management, people orientated captain. When I think about captains of science vessels, I normally think of someone much older, much rounder, probably a bit more weather beaten and isn't actually interested in what you're doing. And I've been on many ships where you rarely ever even see the captain. Mm. And uh, I hate to say it, but the British ships are probably the worst for this in my world, in my my career anyway it's very hierarchical you know the captain's almost untouchable and then the officers are think they're maverick and people sit at lunch like in their order of seniority really they don't look like they gel at all in any way they're like different populations on the ship it's bizarre and they don't look necessarily like each other there are good crews and there are crews that don't really work but Stu's does have an amazing ability to pull together the right people and as i say at the end of every day it doesn't matter what's happened on the day they all sit down together yeah 
It is quite unique, and you know there are some incredible stories of of captains, particularly Stu, and how you have to almost be a hostage negotiator sometimes. You know when things really go for it, and talking your way in or out of certain situations is a big part of the job. And I think Stu will probably say administration is a big part of the job. But I think actually the gift of the gab and the knowing how to interact and handle people who are either up or down, depending on the situation, mm-hmm. is actually a huge part of the job and I think some people have that some people don't if you don't have that you're probably not going to get on well as a captain yeah he's got a good energy about him he doesn't force his way into a situation he's very uh he's very good at dealing with people yeah we'll deep see you next time and I abyss you already The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company, Amatus Oceanic. If you'd like to explore the deep sea for yourself, we can provide the technology and know-how to allow you to do that. Or if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience through storytelling, fact-checking, or presentations, we can help with that as well. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone. Well, who would have thought? I'm, I'm quite popular on Twitter now. I got over a thousand likes for that snailfish picture. That's good going. Yeah. I sent a text message to my entire research group saying i would sooner take validation off the ghost of a sad horse that lives in an antique mirror than go on twitter <laughs> and then the horse appeared and now we're on twitter then the sad horse appeared in the antique <laughs> mirror and i said am i doing all right and the sad horse says yeah and i was like okay all right let's have a, let's have a go at twitter